Welcome. Thank you. Uh, let me straighten this up in such a way that I can not only speak through it, but also see my notes, which would be helpful. Uh, this is yours, I think. You, yeah, or somebody's. Not mine. Good. Thank you so much, LJ and Corey. And uh, it is good to be here at last. I have to say it's, it's been a while, uh, but um, lots of other things have happened. Also, please excuse um, the voice. It's a little bit rough and raw because I'm, I'm COVID negative. Don't be afraid of that. But I, somewhere or other in the last week when I've been in the States, I've picked up a bit of a cold. Uh, and so it's given me a slight huskiness down here, which may or may not need a bit of remedy. Uh, Praveen and Veena uh, Bunyan, who are here somewhere who I'm staying with, uh, have made me a lovely concoction here with some cider vinegar and ginger and honey and everything. So if I need a bit of that, um, I'll, be, I'll be taking a swig, but don't worry, that's, that's all it is. Um, I think, I think that's all it is. <laughs> I hope that's all it is. Yes, and, uh, and just also to, to echo what Corey said, uh, we've been friends really through John Stott. It was John Stott that brought us together uh, by uh, Corey being a study assistant for John during those years, uh, and then me, um, with great trepidation, taking on the ministries that John had founded and wondering exactly what that would mean and how you'd do it, uh, and moving down to London to be close to All Souls Church Langham Place, which is John Stott's uh, old church, and that's where my wife Liz and I now are members there, and I'm on the ordained uh, staff. I'm not. I'm paid by Langham. I work for Langham, but uh, they give me the privilege of being able to preach for them from time to time. So I am uh, an Anglican ordained pastor, but as Corey said, I was brought up Presbyterian um, in Northern Ireland, um, which, by the way, is where the accent comes from. If you're just wondering, I was born and brought up in Belfast, which is a good movie to watch as well. And I, if you, if you, it, it sort of takes us back to our childhood, Liz, my wife Liz and I, in that movie. Good. Well, here we are. We're going to be thinking about this uh, integrated or integral mission. The word, the phrase integral mission actually comes uh, from the Spanish. It was really the Latin Americans who began to talk about mission integral um, as, a, as a kind of fresh way of using even rather than just holistic mission, mission that is integral. And somebody explained to me that the word integral in Spanish is a bit like um, whole wheat bread, you know, uh, bread with nothing taken out. Bread that's got the whole of the wheat in it. Uh, and so they, they're using the sense of mission with everything in and nothing removed, all that God wants to be happening. Uh, and that's why the, the word integral or held together is important. And I hope that as we go through this morning, something of that meaning will come through for us. We do need to start, in a sense, exactly where Corey helped, you know, sort of gave me a lovely kick in, which is that uh, one of the problems with this word mission is that we so often argue and fight over what is our mission, what is the mission of the church. Uh, are we just evangelism or evangelism and social action? Uh, there's a holistic mission that we should be responding to the whole of human need. Yes, of course we should, but again, that's very human-centered. You know, it's you and your need and me and my gospel. Or we talk about being missional church. That's another phrase that's come along in recent years. But again, that can be very human-centered. It's uh, who are we as the church and what are we here for and uh, what is legitimately included within that word missional. And part of the problem is when we start from an anthropocentric, a human-centered point of view, we nearly always end up quarreling <laughs> about you know, what's more important than anything else. And that's why I think and have believed for a long time, which is why that book was called The Mission of God, is we do indeed need to start with the mission of God himself. What is God's plan and purpose? And one of the places where I think 
uh, we can see that best is in a very short little place where Paul speaks in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 9 and 10, where Paul says this, that God has made known to us, and he means himself and the apostles, the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. Now, when Paul talks about the will of God, he doesn't, I think, ever, at least not usually, he doesn't mean God's will for my life. He's not talking about God's guidance. You know, we talk about, oh, I want to find God's will for my life. Well, that's good, we do. But that's not what Paul means here. He's not talking about God's guidance of an individual. He's talking about God's great plan, God's purpose, God's will in that big sense. And what is it? Well, he says, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Paul says, that's the plan of God. That's what God is about. God wants to bring this whole creation. Couldn't make it clear. All things in heaven and earth, it's the whole creation. And this broken creation because of our sin, and God wants to bring this broken, sinful, rebellious creation into a unified, healed, reconciled whole in Christ, through Christ, and under Christ. And Paul says, that's the plan of God. That's the mission of God. And he says something similar, as we'll see later in Colossians and elsewhere. But I think we need to get hold of that. And as it says here, Paul, of course, knew Genesis to Malachi. He didn't know Matthew to Revelation. I sometimes have to remind people, you know, that Jesus never read the New Testament. Um, and, and Paul didn't either. He, he wrote bits of it. Um, but, you know, we, we, I'm an Old Testament person, and I keep needing to remind people that the Apostle Paul and the other apostles went out into the Roman Empire, planted churches, spread the gospel on the basis of what we call the Old Testament, the scriptures of the Old Testament. So Paul is thinking here of the whole will of God from Genesis to, as we would say, from Revelation, from the whole Bible story. And uh, if... Corey has a heartbeat and a passion uh, for, you know, the, the, the church exists for the mission of God. My passion these days is to help people to answer the question, what story are you living in? Because one of the problems we have, especially as, as, uh, as Western Christians, is that we have an idea of the gospel that it's somehow, it's what gets me saved. I get my sins forgiven. That's wonderful. Jesus died for me. And I'll go to heaven when I die. And in the meantime, between conversion and death and resurrection, I just sort of live in this world. I live in this world story, which is the Western story, if we're Westerners. Uh, of the post-enlightenment, modernity, it's all just going to get better, progress and so on. And we live in this world's story when the story we ought to be living in is God's story. What is God doing in the world? The story of the Bible from creation to revelation. So I try to get people to see that that's what the Bible is. And I just wonder, before I go any further, if I were to ask you what is the Bible, how you would answer because, you know, for some people, the Bible is just a book full of promises. It's got loads of wonderful promises in the Bible, and they're great. You can have one every day on a calendar, you know. Or for some people, the, the book is just basically a book full of rules. You know, it's the, sort of the Christian's rule book, you know, so you have to be biblical. And again, that's important. There are commands in the Bible. And for others, especially the Presbyterian, the book, it's a book full of doctrines, you know, systematic theology. That's what the Bible's full of. It all got a bit jumbled up, so we have to sort it out alphabetically and so on. But, but basically, the, the Bible is a, a book of doctrine and teaching. Again, true. It, it, of course, the Bible is full of teaching, and we need to treat it. But what the Bible is in its structure is basically a narrative. It takes a beginning, 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it takes you to the end, at the end and the new beginning, a new heaven and a new earth there in Revelation 21, 22. And in between, it tells the story of rebellion and sin, the promises of God, salvation in Christ and that future hope. It is a big story. There's a couple of authors uh, called Michael Goheen and Craig Bartholomew. Mike is Canadian and Craig is South African. But they wrote a book a few years ago called The Drama of Scripture because they wanted us to sort of think of the Bible as a great drama, like a great play directed by God in which God is the principal character, but there's also a cast of thousands all the way through. And they spoke of, of the Bible in that sense. And I sort of picture it like this. Um, I've taken some of these symbols from a friend of mine called Chris Gonzalez, who lives over in Phoenix. Um, and um, he was asked one day by one of his church members, because he had been preaching on this topic, that the Bible is one whole story. And uh, a lady said to him, what do you mean, Pastor, the Bible is one story? I've got thousands of stories in the Bible. It's a book full of stories. Why do you mean one story? So he picked up an envelope off her desk, because she was church secretary, turned it over, and he said, let me show you the whole Bible story in the back of an envelope. And then he just drew a few symbols. In the beginning, God created the world, he said, and he drew an arrow coming down. I make it a triangle, because I like triangles. Uh, and so we've got God and the earth and humanity. And then he drew a cross. He said, but everything went wrong, because we rebelled against God. Act two of the Bible story, we chose to sin. We chose to disregard God's word and to disbelieve him and, uh, you know, to, to distrust his goodness and to disobey his commands. And so we ended up bringing rebellion and sin. But, and then he drew an arrow pointing forward, that third act, because that God didn't leave the story there. He didn't destroy the earth. He made a promise to Abraham that through Abraham, all the nations on the earth would be blessed. And so the whole Old Testament act of the story, which is a very long act, uh, but it's basically a story that's always on the move. It's always taking us forward, ultimately, of course, towards Christ. But there's this sense of hope and direction. When will God bring this? When will all the nations come to worship God, as the Psalms say? And that leads then, of course, to the central act uh, in the middle, uh, symbolized by the cross, which he drew in the back of an envelope. And he didn't just mean the crucifixion. He's talking about the whole gospel story that we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, that is the, the conception by, by the Holy Spirit uh, of in the Virgin, the birth of Jesus, his life, his teaching, his atoning death on the cross, his resurrection uh, to victory over death, and, and his ascension to the right hand of God, where he is now the ruler of the kings of the earth, as he says in Revelation. So that whole central act of the Bible story, the Christ event of Jesus at Nazareth. But the story doesn't end there. Drew another arrow pointing forward. Because the Holy Spirit came. He'd been there before, um, you know, since actually since Genesis 1 verse 2 when the Spirit of God is there. But the Holy Spirit is poured out in the day of Pentecost on the people of the Messiah Jesus. And they are now sent out to the nations so that the promise of Act 3, the promise of the Old Testament, that God would bless the nations, is now going to happen because God is going to bring the gospel to all the nations. So you move from the era of Old Testament promise to the era of New Testament mission, Act 5 of the Bible story. And then ultimately know that the, the last two acts are there yet to come. Uh, Act 6, which will be the return of Christ and the final judgment, which is actually part of the gospel, let's never forget, because it is good news, it is good news that evil will not have the last word in this, in this, in God's universe, that God has promised ultimately to put all things right, to destroy that which is evil and all that is unrepented wickedness. Uh, and that God will deal with that. 
In a sense, another word for the final judgment would be the great rectification, when God puts all things right. And then the glorious act seven, when God makes all things new, in a new heaven and a new earth. So the last, he, my friend Chris, at that point, drew an arrow coming down. And he said, you might wonder, why didn't I not put the arrow going up? You know, we all go up to heaven. He said, that's not how the Bible ends. The Bible does not end with us going to heaven. The Bible ends with God coming here. God coming to us to make his home with us. Uh, thank you. I'm glad somebody agrees. Um, it's always encouraging on a Saturday morning. Um, you know, and, and that, again, it's so important that God loves his creation and will redeem his creation, all things in heaven and earth. So on the back of an envelope, I've done this on the back of envelopes sometimes with folks. I've even done it on the back of a, a restaurant napkin, um, sitting with somebody over a meal. So let me tell you the whole Bible story and just draw this out. And what I'm trying to get at here is if we are thinking, what is our mission? What is my mission? We have to be in this story because we are in there, aren't we? We're actually in this story in Act 5. If you wanted to draw a little smiley face, which I sometimes do, you could put it there in Act 5. It's where we are. We're somewhere between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ, aren't we? So in that sense, we're in the Bible. You know, you're in the Bible. You're part of God's story. And that's why we live there in this era of mission. So I wanted to get that across. If, if this was, you know, I could actually do every one of those acts as a, almost as a single lecture and talk about everything that God reveals uh, through Genesis and through the Old Testament and through the Gospels and through the Book of Acts and so on. But we're not going to do that right now. So that's uh, the, the mission of God. Now, that all sounds fine. And you say, good, well, that's what God is doing. But it still sort of leaves the so what question, doesn't it? I mean, we still have to come back and say, to us, well, if that's God's mission, you know, well, what is our mission? How do we participate in that? And that's, of course, where there have been many ways to try to uh, explain that uh, or, or give a sense of, of what the mission of the church is. That's why I did those two books. One, The Mission of God, which is trying to interpret the whole of the Bible in, in this way, in, in a sense. And uh, the other, The Mission of God's People, which is saying, well, if that's God's mission, what's ours? What's the mission of the church? And one that I rather like, and LJ mentioned it earlier on when she was introducing me, is the so-called five marks of mission. Now, this is not the only way you could think about mission. I just happened to find it helpful. It was devised, actually, going back to 1984 within the Anglican Communion. That's to say, not just in the Church of England, but the, the global Anglican Communion. And in 1984, they came up with a, a document in which they spoke of the mission of the church in these terms. And I'm, I'm just quoting from it. Uh, and I'll put it up now on the screen, a sort of, Oh, no, sorry, uh, what I wanted to do, sorry. <laughs> oh, dear me, it, I, I keep forgetting this. What I wanted to do was just to consolidate that sense of the mission of God becoming ours through a quotation from this little document, the Cape Town Commitment, which you may or may probably not have heard of, but you may have heard of the Lausanne uh, movement, which is a great global mission uh, catalytic movement founded originally by John Stott and Billy Graham. And they had their third conference in Cape Town, South Africa in 2010 and produced this document, the Cape Town Commitment. And in it, there's a paragraph which goes like this, and uh, I'll find it and then read it to you. It says, we are committed to world mission because it is central to our understanding of God, 
the Bible, the church, human history, and the ultimate future. The whole Bible reveals the mission of God to bring all things in heaven and on earth into unity under Christ. There's Ephesians, reconciling them through the blood of his cross, which is Colossians. And then it goes on, in fulfilling his mission, God will transform the creation broken by sin and evil into the new creation in which there is no more sin or curse. God will fulfill his promise to Abraham to bless all nations on the earth through the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, the seed of Abraham. God will transform the fractured world of nations that are scattered under the judgment of God into the new humanity that will be redeemed by the blood of Christ from every tribe and nation and people and language and will be gathered to worship our God and Savior. And God will destroy the reign of death, corruption and violence when Christ returns to establish his eternal reign of life and justice and peace. And then God, Emmanuel, will dwell with us and the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. And I occasionally have taught this or read that out in Africa. They jump up and down and go, hallelujah. You know. But we're Presbyterian, so we go. You know. So I hope as you sort of heard me read that, you detected the echoes of scripture all the way through that. Uh, this is an attempt to bring, take from creation to new creation. This is the mission of God, and therefore this is our mission. So on then to those five marks. And I think that's what comes up next. Here we are. Um, I'll, I'll read out these five phrases, and you can see that starting at the top and going uh, around in the clockwise direction, that this is what they talk about. They said, the mission of the church is the mission of Christ. One, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, which is basically evangelism. Two, to teach, baptize, and nurture new believers the job of teaching. Three, to respond to human need by loving service. It's works of compassion, love, mercy ministries. Four, to seek to transform the unjust structures of society. So to seek justice and to do justice, as the scriptures repeatedly tell us to do. And five, to strive to safeguard the integrity of creation and sustain and renew the life of the earth, or basically the responsible use of and care for God's creation. And it does seem to me that all of those have deep roots in the scripture. That's the first thing I'd want to say. Uh, every one of those one could root in biblical teaching of what God wants to be done, that God wants the gospel to be shared. God wants people to become mature. God is the God of compassion and love and mercy and so on. But the other thing that I uh, feel is important to do, which isn't specifically in that document, is to do what the diagram does, which is to put at the very center the lordship of Christ. Because, as I think was on my title, uh, I'm thinking also here about the Great Commission, which, as you know, is it there at the end of Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples baptizing them, disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you to the end of the age. And you notice that that great commission puts the lordship of Christ front and center. Um, and in the rest of the New Testament, um, that lordship of Christ, Jesus as Lord and King and Messiah, 
is effectively the equivalent of what Jesus talks about as the kingdom of God in the Gospels. It's the reign of God now entering human life through Jesus of Nazareth, through his messiahship, through his death and resurrection. And because the kingdom of God has come in Christ, then Jesus is Lord, kurios Jesus. Uh, and that's what the New Testament goes and proclaims. So all five of these marks of mission, we look at them in a moment, we'll have a break in the middle, but all five of these marks do depend on the Lordship of Christ, don't they? I mean, what are we doing in evangelism? We are proclaiming the good news that Jesus is Lord and all that flows from that. And what are we doing when we're teaching and discipling? We're bringing people to maturity in Christ, helping to grow up into Christ, as Paul puts it in some of his letters. And in works of compassion, we're following the example of Christ, who went about doing good, as Peter says, uh, and was filled with compassion for the crowds. And in, in doing justice or seeking justice, we remember that Jesus Christ is the judge on the throne of the universe. He's there in the, in the seat of God's government, according to Revelation. All justice ultimately flows from the throne of God. Even our partial justice, which is always provisional, it's never perfect, but ultimately it is doing what God wants to be done. And of course, in creation care, uh, we are caring for what belongs to Christ, as Paul puts it, by right of creation and redemption. So I think these five marks do have a certain validity. As I said, I'm not wanting to sort of go to the stake saying this is the only way to think about mission. It's just, I think, a helpful way. It just helps to get your mind around something, which is useful. But, you know, having been a teacher all my life, I like to make things simple wherever I can. And I find that one can take these five and reduce it, not reduce it, but restructure it as three. Because there is a sense in which evangelism and teaching obviously go together as the work of building the church, uh, of, of bringing people to repentance and faith and then to obedience and maturity in Christ. So that, that, that sort of church nurturing task, bringing people to Christ and building them up is building the church. And then the other two, of course, likewise seem to go together, works of compassion and justice, is where we are serving society. Uh, where God has sent us. Do you remember Jesus said uh, twice that as the Father sent me into the world, so I send you into the world to serve, to be salt and light in society, uh, to be doing good stuff. As the Apostle Paul says in Titus, we'll think of that later, repeatedly, he says that our people, our Christian people should be eager to do good works. And he wasn't just talking about I mean, being nice to each other, he was talking about public good works. Uh, and then, uh, similarly, the care of creation, I would say, is, is basically fulfilling the first great commission. Because remember that the very first commands that God gave to the human race were, one, that we should exercise rule and authority. That's in Genesis 1. They were created in the image of God and uh, commanded to fill the earth and subdue it and to exercise God's delegated authority within creation. So in that sense, we function like kings on this earth under the kingship of God. But then in Genesis 2, uh, he puts Adam in the garden to serve and keep it, the two Hebrew verbs. It's the language of priesthood. It's serving and keeping something that God entrusts. And so you have this sense of the human commission is basically to live in God's creation uh, exercising God's authority, but in God's way. Uh, kingship through servanthood, which of course is modeled perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, you call me Lord and Master, and you're absolutely right. But if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, 
then that's how he exercises his lordship. And so that's how we are to do it within creation as well. Um, so I would want to say that, you know, when we become Christians, we don't stop being humans. Um, though sometimes you might wonder. Um, you know, God didn't say to the human race, you know, subdue the earth, fill it, care for it, look after it, everybody except the Christians because they've got something else to do. No, he says, you know, all of us are to be doing this. So this, this creational mandate, I would want to say, uh, you know, undergirds everything else. And we'll come back to that a little bit later um, after we've had a break. So let's go around these then, first of all. We look, I don't know whether this will, uh, we have a point. Anyway, to the left-hand side, evangelism and teaching, building the church. And then we'll, uh, after we've thought about that for a minute, we'll take a short break and then come to the other side, uh, serving society. So first of all, then Jesus, oh yeah, this is also, uh, you've got these three elements. I said there were three, because the mission of God, and again, this is quoting from the Cape Town Commitment, addresses all three of these areas. Uh, it addresses individuals because we're all sinners and we need to repent, we need to be forgiven. There's no question about that. But it also addresses society because God cares about government and society and everything else. It's very clear in the Bible. And it addresses God's creation because, as the Cape Town Commitment puts it, all three of those areas are broken and suffering because of sin. All three of them are included in the redeeming love and mission of God. He loves everything he has made, according to Psalm 145, and therefore all three need to be part of a comprehensive understanding of the mission of the church. So I think this triple focus, again, I would want to say, is biblically valid, uh, but you may want in the Q&A at the end come back and ask further about that. So let's move then to the first side of the diagram, building the church through evangelism and discipling. There is a sense in which this is the most obvious one that follows immediately from the Lordship of Christ. That is, if Jesus is Lord, then first of all, I am called upon to submit to him as Lord. And then I'm also called in obedience to his Lordship to seek to bring others under the Lordship of Christ. So the sharing of the gospel, the sharing of the good news seems to be a very um, in a sense, first up thing that would follow from the Lordship of Christ. It's quite important, I think, to get this word right, evangelism, that it basically just means gospeling. It's, it's slightly unfortunate, I think, that in the English language, the word gospel and evangelism have somehow separated, evangelism being a Greek or Latin word and uh, gospel being an old Anglo-Saxon word, meaning good news. Because basically in, in, in Greek, it was the same word, there is a euangelion, that's the word evangelion. And that word wasn't even a Christian word. Um, it was a street word. It was a word that the Roman emperors used when they wanted to tell everybody it was good news because the emperor had a birthday or had won some victory. And so heralds would go around the Roman Empire, euangelia, good news. Uh, our great God and savior, Caesar Augustus, has brought peace to the whole world. That's the language they used. Uh, the Apostle Paul, of course, subverts that by applying it to Christ. But this idea that there's a good news to share uh, was not a concept or an idea, you know, some new religious philosophy. The word always meant something has happened, something has been done, which is good news for everybody. Uh, the emperor has won a victory or it's, you know, something like that, or he's defeated some other people. And so when the apostle went out and said, hey, there's a good news to share, he said, well, what's happened? 
And what they would then say is that the one true living God who created this world uh, and who watched us make a mess of it because of our sin and rebellion, this one living God, not all your gods, but this one living God, the God of Israel, because the people of Rome knew that the Jews only had one God, which was very odd of them. Um, but this one living God has acted to bring salvation to the world through his son, Jesus of Nazareth. And what happened to him? Well, he was crucified, eh? You know, uh, this, this crucifixion of the one you say is the savior of the world, how does that make sense? Well, because God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of this. And so the gospel is good news about events, about something that has happened. And this God who sent Jesus, who's risen from the dead and is now at God's right hand, he's coming back and he's coming back as king and you need to get on his side. That's what the good news calls for because otherwise it's bad news uh, if you don't uh, because there's wrath to come and this God is angry with sin. But you can be in his story through turning away from your own story and your sin and, uh, and receiving his forgiveness. And then you can be belong to Jesus the Messiah and, and, and have eternal life and so on. So this good newsing is, is simply the declaring of something that's happened. God's story, God's truth, gospeling it. And that obviously needs to be at the center of everything else. Uh, because if we're going to talk about integral mission, then it needs to be integrated around something. And that's why I like to use the word, yeah, uh, the way um, this, when I talk about the centrality of the gospel, um, some people talk about the primacy of evangelism, and I, I know what they mean. It was one of John Stott's favorite phrases as well. I've now come to the view that I'd rather talk about the centrality of the gospel because the primacy of evangelism keeps going back to this sense of this is what we've got to do and this is the most important thing we have to do. Whereas I want to say the gospel really is what God has already done. What we need to be, you know, getting hold of is that it's not evangelism that is the power of God to salvation. It's the gospel that is the power of God to salvation. And the gospel is the good news of what God has done to save the world. And that gospel is at the center, but not in a way that then makes everything else peripheral and marginal. You know the way we sometimes use that word central? You know, you're in a committee meeting and there's lots of things being discussed and options are all being suggested and then say, yeah, but the really central thing here is this, meaning all the other stuff, you don't need to worry about it. This is the most important. That's not the way I'm using the word central here. I'm using it, as it says on the screen, in the way that we would think of the hub of a wheel as the integrating center that holds everything else together. Um, if you think of the wheel of a car, you know, the, the, the driving wheels, um, the, the hub has to be connected to the power source, to the engine, but there's no point just having a hub, is there? It'll just spin right and right, it won't go anywhere with, with only a hub. Uh, you have to have the hub integrated with the, 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 the spokes or the, the, the structure of the wheel to the tire where literally the rubber hits the road. Uh, because that's where, the, uh, that's where the connectedness will be with the context, with the road. But equally, there's no good just having a tire because uh, that's a hoop. It'll just roll along a bit and spin over and fall down. You have to have the integration uh, of the centrality of the hub, the gospel, the power of God, and the, as it were, the living out of that, the impact of that within society. So the gospel is an integrated reality. I think that's what comes next. Uh, on my screen, connected to the road. And that's one reason why uh, it is important thinking of integral mission or integrated mission to make sure that we never separate the work of evangelism from its embodiment uh, in lives that are lived in the context. 
So evangelism then, obviously at the center, uh, the gospel at the center of all that we do. But that leads us on then, uh, still building the church, to teaching and discipling. Because even uh, Jesus knew, didn't he, that, uh, and, and, and the phrase there, of course, is where Jesus says uh, teaching, yeah, he, he says teaching them, baptizing them and teaching them. Uh, what's uh, important there is that Jesus himself knew that conversion was not enough, uh, that the seed needs good soil. People might respond very quickly to the seed being sown, you know, shallow, little bit of water, they'll sprout up. But if there's thorns or if there's no depth, then it will quickly die away. It needs good soil. It needs to be deep. It's not surprising that Jesus uh, taught that because... Um, I love this phrase because the Old Testament is filled with teaching. It's very rooted there. That phrase, there's a a professor of mission called Andrew Walls, um, a a Scotsman who's written some amazing books on mission. But um, I was at a conference once, and it was about the relationship between theological education and mission. Do they have anything to do with each other? And he was asked to give the paper on the history of theological education. And so I suppose I thought, well, he'd maybe begin with the great early schools of uh, Alexandria and Antioch and, you know, the early centuries of the church when there was a great deal of uh, learned bishops teaching the church. But no, his opening sentence in his paper was, the Old Testament is the oldest and longest program of theological education. And as an Old Testament, yay, that's, that's great, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, because what was God doing all through those thousand years or more of Old Testament history he was teaching his people, teaching the truth about God. There's only one God, the living God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and so on, and your neighbors yourself. And then he's teaching them about the reality of evil and sin and rebellion and idolatry and trying to wean them off that. Teaching them through the priests who were to be teachers of the law. Teaching them through the prophets who came as the teachers of the people. Teaching them through the wise men and women, the, the wisdom literature. And the Psalms and the worship, it's all one great long curriculum of theological, God-centered education of a whole nation. Yeah, and they still failed their finals. You know, it's it's this sort of sense that all teaching, but at least they got it into the scriptures so that we now are being taught by the God of Israel. So there's that teaching is there in the Old Testament. Jesus comes along and he teaches, teaches, teaches the whole time. That's why they called him rabbi. But then think of the Apostle Paul. Now, of course, we know the Apostle Paul was a great missionary, church planter, evangelist. We often think of him in those ways. But his teaching was as integral to his, quote, missionary career as his evangelism was. He didn't stop being, quote, a missionary when he sat down to write a letter or when he stayed in some place to teach them. In fact, in his personal example, we know that wherever he could, he would stay around and teach for a while. Sometimes he couldn't because they chucked him out, like, you know, Thessalonica and Philippi and so on. Uh, He wasn't able to stay there very long, but then he would write back to them. But in Ephesus, he stayed for nearly three years, and in Corinth, he stayed for about 18 months. And in Ephesus, he tells us very clearly in Acts chapter 20, his speech to the elders twice. In in verse 20, he says, I did not hesitate to teach you everything that was needful for you, both publicly and house to house. 
So he had a busy life of making tents in the morning, probably doing his lectures in the afternoon in the lecture hall, and then visiting the house churches in the evening and teaching. And then in chapter verse 27, he says, I did not hesitate to teach you the whole counsel of God, which again is that same word, the whole will of God, the whole plan of God. So that was Paul. And of course, when he couldn't do it himself, uh, he made sure that he had a team who were doing it alongside him like Timothy and Titus, who instructs to teach faithful people who can teach others. Make sure that the teaching is passed on. And my favorite guy in the New Testament, though we don't know an awful lot about him, but I love Apollos for a number of reasons. Uh, first, because in a way he's, he's the, the first really sort of cross-cultural missionary. Because Apollos came from Africa, uh, from Alexandria, and he was a Jew, and he was learned, and he knew the scriptures very well, and somehow he had come to faith in Jesus. We don't know how, but he'd come to faith in Jesus, and he knew the scriptures. So then he goes from Africa to Asia, uh, to the province of Asia, to the city of Ephesus, where he gets a little bit better theological education from Priscilla and her husband Aquila in their home in Ephesus, where they were. Uh, and then having got his theology a bit more sorted out in Ephesus, in Asia, he goes to Europe. Uh, because they send him across to Corinth. And what we read there in, uh, in Acts chapter 18, at the end of, of Acts chapter 18, is that he was a great help to the people there in Corinth. And I just want to find it and read it to you. thought I had it marked, but here we go. It says, Acts chapter 18, when Apollos went to Achaia, which is Greece in Europe, uh, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. And when he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures, which of course would mean the Old Testament from our point of view, that Jesus was the Messiah. Now that's a very interesting statement, because it means that Apollos was basically engaged in systematic theological education. In our language, he was engaged in apologetics, Old Testament hermeneutics, and Christology. He was teaching Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures in public debate. Uh, now, here's my point. When the church in Corinth started to sort of factionalize between whether they were, you know, I'm Paul's man, or I belong to Apollos, or I'm of Peter, you know, and they, they, they started to do that uh, sort of hero worship stuff. Um, and, you know, Paul is our great missionary church planter. He's the founder of our denomination, you know. And, oh, no, Apollos is a much better teacher. He's a better lecturer, you know, he's you know, whatever it was. And Paul wouldn't have it because you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, Paul insists that um, I planted the church. He says, I was the one who planted it, but Apollos watered the church, and the seed needs to be planted, but it also needs to be watered. And then he says, so you've got the church planter and the church educator. And then he says in chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 8, I think it is, the one who plants, the evangelist, the one who waters, the theological educator, have one mission, one purpose. Literally, he says, they are one. So for Paul, the task of theological teaching was as much a part of the integral mission of the church as was the job of planting the church in the first place, which is why I think that's what it says at the bottom of the screen, that teaching, including theological education, the work of seminaries and so on, is an integral part of mission work. And I find that uh, very encouraging, having been both an Old Testament teacher and a, um, uh, and a seminary teacher, which is where I first met uh, Praveen and Veena, and they were suffered under a few of my classes uh, in, in UBS in India, um, to realize that I wasn't, 
I wasn't a missionary simply because I'd gone from Britain to India. In fact, I used to resist that idea um, because I would say I, I'm no more of a missionary because I've just taken a jet flight than if I'd gone to Nottingham in the UK you know, and done the same job. No, I'm engaged in mission because I'm fulfilling the Great Commission. It's part of the Great Commission. Teaching them. I remember trying to explain uh, the work of Langham Partnership to uh, a lady in a church after we'd sort of was Mission Sunday, sort of like this. Um, and actually, it's not that easy to explain what Langham Partnership is and does sometimes. And I hope you'll go and talk to Corey or Larry Bolbach, who's here in the booth out there with Langham. But I was talking about how we support seminaries. Um, we help to give doctoral scholarships for, for people to do a PhD and then go back. How we provide books for pastors and libraries. And we're engaged in, in preaching training. And, and she said to me, oh, so, so you're not really a missionary organization then, are you? And I got quite upset inside. I, I, was, I was too polite to, you know. Um, but I knew what she meant. What she meant was we aren't an organization that sends missionaries from the West to other parts of the world. But what I felt like saying was, of course we are a missionary organization. Haven't you read the Great Commission, line three, and teaching them? You know, it's not just baptizing and sending and going to the nations. It's also the task of teaching. And I would therefore say that too to, uh, to Corey and to anybody here who's involved with pastoral work in a church. You know, the, the, the pastor who regularly, week by week, is teaching his people to obey what Jesus has commanded, encouraging people to grow up in the faith and engaging in the teaching work of the church, you are engaged in God's mission. That's, that's part of the mission of the church. Uh, not just sending overseas. So that's the, really the first part I wanted to, wanted to say, is this left-hand side of the diagram, uh, there's an integration. Uh, no, sorry, there's an integration. I thought I had my diagram there again, but just going back to where it was, uh, and then I'll come back. That one. On that left-hand side, the integration of evangelism and teaching as integral together because of the centrality of the gospel of the kingdom of God and because Jesus is Lord. So, um, LJ, is it okay if we take a break at that point? That's probably enough for a little while. Shall we say about, what, 10 minutes, 15 minutes at the most? And then we'll come back, and I'll do the other side and, and the bottom, and then we'll have some Q&A. Is that okay? Good. Right. Good. I think a few folks are still coming in from the back with their coffee and buns and things. Thank you for that. The little break was good. Okay. I think. Good. Okay. So we come to the uh, what was on the second right-hand side of the diagram. You remember serving society through compassion and justice. That is the third and fourth of the so-called five marks of mission. Um, and uh, you might want to look that up sometime and uh, develop it further if you wish. But serving society, compassion and justice, you might say, well, hang on a minute. Um, where is that? in the Great Commission. Does Jesus say anything about that? And I would say not directly, but I would say that it is included when Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And certainly Jesus had talked a lot in the Gospels uh, about love and compassion and mercy, uh, and indeed uh, about issues of justice, um, which we'll see in one of his verses in a minute in Matthew's Gospel. But even before we just look at some of the things Jesus said, Something's happened here. Um, uh, can somebody? Oh, is it? 
Oh, it's back. Great. All oh, right. Yes. Phantom of the Opera. Thank you. Yes. Uh, good. I can just I can see my computer down there. But great. Thank you. <clears throat> it's actually just worth noticing that what Jesus actually the words that Jesus uses there are very like Deuteronomy, which I know you know inside out, and so I'm not telling you anything new. Um, but in the book of Deuteronomy. One of the things that God or Moses or both say quite often and words more or less like this is something like, be careful, O Israel, to obey all that I, the Lord your God, am teaching you this day. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very common way of speaking in Deuteronomy. And so when Jesus says, teaching them to observe or to obey all that I have commanded you, um, the echoes of the scripture would have been very clear uh, in the ears of those Jewish disciples. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, it is very clear what God commanded his people to do, which was to be like him, to reflect his character, to, 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 to reflect the way in which Yahweh, the God of Israel, conducted things. And one example of that, and this is really literally is only one example from the book of Deuteronomy, is in chapter 10, Deuteronomy 10, where in verse 12, uh, Moses, like a good preacher, says, now what's the bottom line? It's all boiled down to what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve him, and to observe all his commands. That's all God wants, just those five things, you know. Fear, walk, love, serve, obey. It's, it's a lovely summary. Uh, Moses gets the whole of the law down to five things. Um, later, um, Micah gets it down to three, and Jesus gets it down to two and even to one. But here we've got five. And then you can imagine somebody saying, well, that's great, Moses. Thank you very much. But what does it mean to walk in the way of the Lord? What is the Lord like? What's his way? And so Moses goes on, uh, and he says, to the Lord your God belongs the heaven, the highest heavens, the earth, everything in it. But the Lord set his love on you and chose you as it is today. So you need to repent, circumcise your hearts. And then he starts again, because the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, Great God, mighty and awesome. That's the superlative God he is of the God of the whole universe. But where will you find this God when he's doing God stuff, you know, when he's Godding? Um, where, does, where do you find this God? He takes no partiality. He accepts no bribes. So you can't be corrupt and be walking in the ways of this God. He defends the cause of the fatherless, that is the orphan and the widow, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. That's the kind of God, that's where you'll find him, not just in the palaces of the king, but among those who are fatherless, homeless, landless. And then the very next verse 19 says, and therefore you must love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Very strong, emphatic, and you shall love it's the same, precisely the same form of the verb as you get in Deuteronomy uh, 6. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. Exactly the same form of the verb as you get in Leviticus 19. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. And here, and you shall love the alien, the foreigner, the outsider as yourself. So what God is saying here is if you want to know what it means to walk in the ways of the Lord and be like him, then there's this call to be like God in integrity, in compassion for the poor and the needy and the outsider, the marginalized, because that's what God had been like for Israel. When you were foreigners in Egypt, when you were aliens and slaves, God rescued you. So you see what Jesus is saying here is in almost the same tone of voice as Deuteronomy, 
is saying to his disciples, look, your mission is to make disciples, yes, and baptize them and teach them to obey what I have commanded you, which you know is already based on what the scriptures commanded us. Because all of the teaching of Jesus is so rooted in the scriptures of the Old Testament, and especially in Deuteronomy. And even if we only thought of Matthew's gospel uh, as the gospel where that great commission comes, there are places where Jesus says things like this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. Now, we usually translate that righteousness because we've got two words in English. Um, and we usually associate righteousness in a sort of religious theological sense of being in a right relationship with God, which, of course, it means, includes. But in Jesus' language and in the language of the Old Testament scriptures, uh, this word meant, yes, a right relationship with God because God is the God of righteousness and justice. It's the foundation of his throne. But to be in a right relationship with God required being in right relationships horizontally with others and seeking them. Uh, seeking justice, the justice of God. And Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for that, which many of them did in first century Palestine because they were so oppressed and suffering under the Romans. And then six, chapter 633, seek first the reign of God and his justice righteousness. And again, the Israelites, the Jews that Jesus was speaking to, didn't need to be told what that meant because the Psalms that talk about the kingship of God, Psalm 96, 98, and a whole range of Psalms which declare the Lord is king, also speak about how righteousness and justice are not only the foundation of his throne, but what he demands of human beings. And Jesus says, seek that first. And then you remember chapter 23, verse 23, which is an interesting one where uh, Jesus at first sight commends the Pharisees for being so careful in the way they were obeying the law. He says, you know, you, you, you believe in tithing, so you even tithe your herbs and spices. You know, you divide them up and give a tenth to God. But he says, you have neglected, what he says, the weightier matters of the law, literally the heavy stuff. And Jesus says, that is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Those are Jesus's words. He says, that's the really important thing in the Torah. Probably an echo of Micah chapter 6, verse 8, I should think, uh, where the prophet had said, what does the Lord your God require of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? So, you see, it, it seems to me that Jesus is standing, as it were, uh, on this great scriptural platform uh, of what we call Old Testament. For him, it was just the scriptures. He's endorsing it. He's mandating it and commissioning his disciples, as it were, to live that way themselves, uh, what he had commanded them, and then to teach those whom they make disciples to do the same. And so it's, it's out of that kind of background, you see, of, of scriptural rooting and grounding of Jesus' teaching that he could say something like this, you are the light of the world to his disciples. So you think they must have been a bit shocked? <laughs> Who, what, us? You know, this scraggy bunch of disciples, you know, a few ex-fishermen and... Uh, um, a tax collector, for goodness sake, um, and a former terrorist, Simon the Zealot, because the Zealots basically were the sort of Jewish terrorists of the day. They were assassins. They were out killing Romans wherever they could, and one of them had come to be a follower of Jesus. And Jesus says to this bunch of guys, you are the light of the world. And, you know, you wonder what on earth did he mean? Um, did he mean that they would be the ones who would go out and 
bring the light of the gospel into the darkened minds of people, as Paul talks about in, you know, in 2 Corinthians 4, where he says that the God who said, let there be light, has shown the light of the gospel into our hearts. Well, yes, of course, I'm sure that Jesus would have included that sense of, uh, of the preaching of the gospel, because he sent them out to preach. But what Jesus actually said on that occasion, when he said, you are the light of the world, he went on to explain is so let your light so shine that people may see your good deeds. Uh, not listen to your great testimony or your wonderful preaching, though that will be there, but they will see your lives, lives of good stuff. Um, <clears throat> the word, I'm not sure what this would have been in Aramaic that Jesus would have been speaking, but in our Greek New Testament, the word translated good deeds is a word which has a sense of something beautiful and attractive. Not just morally good and upright, but something that is beautifully good, something that is attractive, something that people love. You know, that element of sort of kindness alongside goodness, that's there in, in what Jesus said. And Jesus says, that's what I want you to be, to be people whose goodness, good living, will be a light to the world. And again, we want to say, I want to say anyway, uh, where does Jesus get that idea from? Now, that may sound a little bit blasphemous to you. Know, Jesus didn't need to get his ideas from anywhere. He was God, true, and all of that. But we know that Jesus' mind was saturated with the scriptures. Um, so when he's tempted in the wilderness, he responds instantly with scripture from Deuteronomy. Um, and he quotes the Psalms and so on. So Jesus, as a, as a Jewish boy, would have probably had to learn most of the Torah by memory, by heart. He would have known the scriptures inside out. And I think this idea of being light to the world in an ethical sense probably echoes Isaiah. So I call Isaiah, you say Isaiah, um, but I'll go on with Isaiah because I'm from Northern Ireland. That's how we say it there. Isaiah chapter 58. Uh, and listen to this. This is God saying to the Israelites, look, you know, you're all fasting and everything, but is that the kind of religion I want? This is what I want, says God, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor with shelter, and when you see the naked, to clothe them. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your righteousness will go before you. See that link between light and righteousness when you do good stuff? And then later in verse 10, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will be like the noonday. So, you see, here's, here's Jesus with his scriptural roots in Deuteronomy and Isaiah. And just as the God of Israel in the Old Testament commanded his people to be a people who are committed to the compassion and justice of God himself because that's definitive of God. He is the gracious and compassionate God in Exodus. He's the God for whom justice is the foundation of his throne, say the Psalms. And Jesus endorsed because, in a sense, who is this Jesus? This Jesus is the living God of the Old Testament scriptures walking in flesh among us. This is not Jesus talking about somebody else. Uh, this is the living God himself in, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, that's why I get so upset when people talk about, you know, they're not too sure about the Old Testament God. And I say, well, you read them in the Gospels. You know, that's the Old Testament God. 
It is the God of the scriptures who has made flesh in Jesus. And he had no problem with the Old Testament scriptures. So here is this God of the scriptures endorsing them, emphasizing them, quoting them, and commanding his disciples to pass this on and say, teaching them to obey what I have commanded you, which is so rooted in the scriptures. And they did. And the important thing when we get to uh, the book of Acts is just to notice how integrated uh, was the, the mission of the early Christian church, integrated in the sense that, of course, we know that they went out preaching the cross and resurrection of the Messiah, preaching the gospel, bringing it to the Jews first and then to the Samaritans and then up to Antioch and the Gentiles and so on. But Luke is very careful to point out several times um, that they did this along with uh, a, a kind of social and economic lifestyle which was attractive to the surrounding people. So he tells us in Acts chapter 4, if I can quickly quote this, I think it's on there, and I'm sure you remember this, uh, that um, Luke says that all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that the, any of their possessions were their own. They shared what they had, and with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was powerfully at work among them. So there's the preaching of the gospel, and there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land brought it and sold it and laid it at the apostles' feet and so on. Now, again, here's interesting. That phrase, there were no needy persons among them, is almost a word-for-word -word quote from Deuteronomy chapter 15 uh, in the Greek translation that Luke would have been familiar with, where God had said to the Israelites, there need be no needy persons among you if only you will obey my law. And, and here is Luke in a word saying, and that desire, that aspiration of Deuteronomy, that there did not need to be gross inequality in Israel between the very rich and the very poor, is now being made real uh, in the community, the eschatological community created by the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of the scriptures. And here they are, they want to give their spiritual unity economic reality. And so they will be one, not just in heart, but also by making sure that there's no needy persons among them. Fascinating. And then um, I wonder, yeah, there we go. Uh, I wonder what you think was the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. Now, as Corey said, I was brought up in a Presbyterian church and we all learned the missionary journeys of Paul. They're there in the back of the Bible and the maps, you know, you can see them, uh, concentric circles uh, and, and so on. And the first one, of course, was Acts chapter 13, when the church in Antioch, under the influence and power and instruction of the Holy Spirit, sent uh, Saul of Tarsus and Barnabas off uh, to for Cyprus and then up into what we now call Turkey to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Well, that was not the first time that the church in Antioch sent Saul and Barnabas under the instruction of the Holy Spirit. The first time is in Acts 11. And in Acts 11, the Holy Spirit reveals to the church that there's going to be a famine through Agabus, the prophet, uh, in the land. And Luke tells us that happened under the reign of Claudius. And so the church in Antioch decided they needed to help the believers in Jerusalem who were suffering and poor. So they gathered a gift, everyone contributing as they could. And we read, they sent it by the hand of Barnabas and Saul to the church in Jerusalem. And then later in chapter 13, we read that Saul and Barnabas returned from their mission. That's the way the NIV translates it. So Paul's first missionary journey, if we want to use that language, was for famine relief. 
And I think that made a very deep impact on him, so, so much so that in all his missionary work thereafter, uh, he was very keen to make sure that he was also caring for the poor. And you might say, how do you know that? Well, because he tells us. He tells us in, in uh, Galatians chapter 2, uh, where he says that there was another time he went up to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles there. And I'm now reading from Galatians chapter 2, verse 7, that they recognized, the other apostles, that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is, to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. And they had sort of made that uh, arrangement between them. Uh, and then he says, so they, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, okay? They recognized that we were preaching the true gospel and that we should go to the Gentiles and they would go to the circumcised. And then verse 10, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. And then Paul adds, the very thing that I'd been eager to do all along, he says. It's as if Paul said, they didn't have to tell me to do that. I was doing it anyway. So here is Paul saying that his missionary work included evangelism, church planning, and the care for the poor. Now, we know that uh, that was, again, his collection among the Gentiles, the churches in Greece, for the uh, poverty-stricken churches in, uh, in Jerusalem. And you might say that's very specific and uh, very particular. And yes, I, I would agree with that. Or we might want to say, well, he was only thinking of, you know, relieving the poor among the believers, among the Christians. He wasn't setting up charities for famine relief among all the Romans. Well, um, Paul does say in the same letter in Galatians, uh, he says, do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. Yes, of course, we should be caring for one another. But he does say that good works are to be for everyone. And that's also why I put in there that little letter to Titus. Now, um, Titus has only got three chapters. It's a tiny little book. And you need to know that it's the context of that letter uh, was, uh, was Paul having left Titus on the island of Crete. And you know that what he says about Crete is that they're a bunch of liars and everything else, and, you know, evil, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, always liars. Now, Paul, Paul's not making that up. It's actually a proverb about Crete. And it is known from other ancient sources that Crete was a pretty awful place. It was an island in the middle of the Mediterranean uh, where it was very handy to run pirate ships from in all directions because they could control the sea trade. And so it was a den of robbers, pretty literally, Crete, a very bad place. And somehow or other, Paul or Titus, well, it must have been Paul with Titus, have had an evangelistic campaign on, on Crete, and people have come to faith in Jesus in every town, apparently. Now, how are you going to change Crete? How are you going to make a difference in that kind of a society? And what Paul keeps telling Titus is that he must, first of all, that he must preach the, the faith that leads to godliness, he says, uh, the truth that leads to godliness. They, they need to know the gospel, but it has to be a gospel that transforms people. And how are you going to do that? He goes on six times in this little letter to use the phrase good works, doing good works. Uh, unfortunately, in our NIV, it now translates it as doing uh, what is good. And that's a slightly weaker translation, I think, to do what is good. Because um, sort of, you know, what is good? You know, he actually, the phrase he uses is do good works. Literally, there's two phrases for it: kala erga and uh, agatha erga, and he uses it six times. 
Uh, and he's very clear that we don't get saved by doing good works because he says that God saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us by his grace poured out upon us. But then he says, so that those who have been justified by God and trusted in him may be careful to devote themselves to doing good works. And at the very end, the very last thing he says in verse 14 is, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good, doing good works. And even if you're a slave, says Paul, of a non-Christian master, if you will be an honest slave, don't talk back, don't steal from your master and so on, then you can commend the gospel, you can make the gospel attractive. And that phrase, good works, by the way, or doers of good, uh, was a, a technical word in the Roman Empire for benefactors. In fact, the word benefactor is just Latin for Greek doing good. It just means good doing, benefactor. And in the Roman Empire, a benefactor would be somebody who did a notable act of public service. Maybe they would build a temple and their name would be associated. Or they would build, a, you know, washing baths or, uh, or a sports arena. Or they would have paid for the supply of food and bread and corn from somewhere to come to the city. Um, something that they had done which was recognized as the common good, good for society. And then their name would be put up, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so, benefactor. And Paul says Christians need to be benefactors in society. We need to be doing good. So that's what I believe that the Apostle Paul, you see, had what he would describe as an integral, holistic understanding of mission, that we're called to faith and works, to word and deed, to the proclamation and the demonstration of the gospel. So building the church uh, through evangelism and teaching, serving society in these various ways, my last point is there that, to me, obeying the commands of Jesus in that sense of doing what is good must be included in obeying the great commission of Jesus. I put it like that simply because um, there are those, I mean, as you know, there's a lot of different theologians of mission around the place, and there are those who want to argue that the great commission is only about the ministry of the word, that is, the preaching of the gospel and the teaching of believers. Um, and that all the other stuff that Christians can do, you know, in society, doing good works and so on, it's all good, but it's not mission, it's not Great Commission stuff. And I just have to say, I, I find that illogical, I don't understand that. Because if Jesus says in the Great Commission, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, that's much more than just teaching. Jesus did not say, teach them all that I taught you, because that could just be in the head, right? You just communicate knowledge, teach them all I taught you, that would be enough. But so it's not just teaching what I taught you, it's teach them to obey what I commanded you. And that's obedience stuff. That's practical stuff. That's good works. And so that's why I want to make this point. It seems to me that the sometimes called the social aspect of mission, you know, you have evangelism and social action, um, building the church, serving society. I want to say that side is also integrated into the Great Commission. It's part of what Jesus meant. It's not just extra uh, it's something that's actually part of what was intended. Um, John Stott came to believe that too and made it very clear in some of his writing that he saw that uh, the integration of evangelism and social action uh, was an integration because they were both included within the Great Commission. He actually said so much. That brings me then to the last point. I'll try and do this a bit more quickly because um, it really would require a whole lecture by itself. But we haven't got time for that, but sometime... Uh, 
Let me do it later, or it's, well, it's actually in my books. Creational responsibility, ruling and caring for creation. And again, you might say, hang on, where's that in the Great Commission? And I want to say, well, actually, you know, we could have started there because it's where Jesus started. Jesus began the Great Commission not with go and make disciples, but with all authority in where? Heaven and earth is given to me. Now, that phrase, heaven and earth, uh, is actually um, the Jewish way, the Old Testament way of speaking of creation. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. Uh, at the end, Revelation 21, then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, a whole new creation. And Paul in Colossians talks about all things in heaven and on earth being created by Christ and for Christ. So un unmistakably, Jesus is here claiming to be Lord of all creation, which is astonishing because he's the human Jesus. He's the man that they'd walked and talked with for three years. And here he is standing on the Mount of Ascension and he uses words which, again, they'd have heard the echoes of. You see there in Deuteronomy 4, verse 39, um, that's where Moses had said to Israel, uh, Israel, you must know and acknowledge this day that the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath, and there is no other. He's the God of all creation, God in heaven and earth. There's nowhere else to be God in. Uh, you see, so there's no other God because there's nowhere else to be God. So if he's the God of all of heaven and all of earth, that's everything. And here is Jesus, the man Jesus, saying to his disciples, guys, you know who I am now. Um, this is the Lord God of Israel, the mighty one of Israel, standing on the mountain facing them. No wonder Matthew says that when they saw him, they worshipped him. Though some doubted, um, you know, and Matthew's honest about that. But, you know, when you read that and you think, who were these guys? These were all Jews, right? At that particular point on the Mount of Ascension. They're all Jews. And here they are in the presence of Jesus and they worship him. They knew that the worst thing you could do as a Jew was to worship anything or anybody that was not God. Jews had died by the thousands in martyrdom for refusing to worship the gods of, of, of the Greeks and Antiochus and so on. And here they're in the presence of the risen Jesus and they worship him. So here is the Lord of all creation. And that's quite important then for this point of what do we think creation is? It belongs to Christ. It's his. He is the Lord of it. Paul, in his usual way, makes much more of this in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, uh, which is a quite incredible piece of writing. Uh, it's, you know, it's so exalted. He's talking about the Son, Jesus, and he says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible in and so on. All things created through him, for him, and in him all things hold together. Then he comes to the church body of Christ and he's the head then he comes back to the whole of creation uh, and it was God's will in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross the cross was the reconciling of creation to God not just how you or I get to heaven the cross was God's cosmic plan for all of creation. And we so often forget that. We just, we just leave that bit out somehow, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself through the blood of Christ. It's interesting that Paul actually there is using Roman language and subverting it because the Romans made peace by the blood of the cross. Um, they just crucified anybody who wasn't at peace with them. You know, they, they made peace made a desert and called it peace, but they just crucified their opponents. Paul says, God has made peace 
through the blood of the cross, not the way the Romans do, but the way God himself did by bearing the cross in himself. So what that means then, I think, is that we can't separate our personal submission to Christ as Lord, saying Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, which is very true, uh, and that's the essence of the gospel. We can't separate my personal submission to Christ as Lord from the Lordship of Christ over all of creation because he's the Lord of creation. And the way I think about creation, the way I use creation, the way I work with creation in my job, whatever it is, must be submitted to Christ. And I want to say a little bit about that um, tomorrow after the church service, about, you know, the, uh, the missional importance of our daily work, uh, because we're at work within God's creation, and how does that affect the way we think about it? So therefore, uh, bottom line of that is to say that therefore, we go on about this a lot, that ecological concern and action, involvement with, quotes, environmental issues, which is the sort of secular way of speaking about creation, I think do need to be brought within uh, a legitimate understanding of Christian mission for Christ's sake, uh, because he's the Lord of it. Um, now, I'm not going to go through all of this, to be glad to say, because time's moving on. But at some stage, you might want to take a note of those, and I can quite happily make this PowerPoint available to people if you want afterwards. I can email it to LJ and use it. But this fact that all of creation is included in God's plan of redemption goes way, way back in the scriptures. Um, Isaiah, well, 65 speaks about God creating a new heavens and the new earth. That's where John in Revelation gets the idea from. It's the language of Isaiah, new heavens and a new earth. Uh, the Psalms speak about all creation rejoicing when God comes to judge. If you wonder what that means, you know, the rivers are clapping their hands, the mountains are leaping about. The whole of creation is rejoicing because God is coming to put things right. Uh, and when God comes to judge, that's what it means, to judge is to get everything right. God will get everything sorted out and then creation will rejoice, which of course is what Paul talks about in Romans 8 when he said the whole creation is longing for the day when we are fully redeemed, the revelation of the sons of God, and he connects together the resurrection of our bodies with the redemption of creation. Because we're going to need resurrection bodies to live in the new creation, because it's going to be physical, not just floating around in nighties and halos and wings and things up in heaven. Uh, we're, we're, we're going to be real human beings, like the risen Lord Jesus, who was able to eat and, and drink and be touched and light a fire and eat breakfast and all of that. He was not less than physical, he was more than physical. He was fully physical and more, plus, and that will be our resurrection. And that's Colossians 1, and also, just to say, 2 Peter is sometimes used to say that, well, it's all going to be burned up, so what's the point of caring for the earth now if it's all going to be burned up at the end? People sometimes say that. Um, I sometimes say, well, you don't think about that way about your own body, do you, actually? If you go to a doctor and you've got a problem and you're sick, and the doctor says, well, you know, you're going to be burnt up in a crematorium anyway. So why should I bother healing you now? You know, you'd get out of there pretty quick, wouldn't you? you know, it's, it's not a very logical reason. But actually, I don't think that's what 2 Peter means anyway. I think the, the language of fire and destruction in 2 Peter 3 is talking about the purging, the cleansing fire of, of getting rid of the dross and the evil, cleansing the earth, just like the flood did. First half of the chapter, the word was destroyed by water. And then uh, Peter says, and so they, they're being kept for the fire of God's judgment and the destruction of the ungodly, which is the same word. Um, so it's not so much you know, um, an incinerator which 
leaves nothing but ash. It's all destroyed. It's, it's more the smelting furnace in which what is burnt up is the dross and what comes out is the pure gold. Um, so I think that's the, more the imagery of the true Peter. So it's not a, a purging. And then we have, of course, the new creation, Revelation 21, 22. What a wonderful way the Bible ends. You know, so many Christians have got damaged Bibles, haven't they? You know, they, it's a bit, the first two pages and the last two pages have got torn off because, you know, we, we, we all know about sin in Genesis 3. We're all sinners. We know about the Day of Judgment in, in Revelation 19, 20. Um, and in between, we know we've got the cross and so we're saved and we're okay. But we forget that the Bible begins with creation and ends with new creation. Uh, and in between has this whole story of salvation, which includes us. So let me finish with a, another quote from the Cape Town Commitment. Uh, uh, speaking about this, uh, maybe I can find it in here so I can read it out without looking that way. Uh, one seven, yeah, I think I can find it. Um, where we love uh, God's creation. Um, yeah, here we are. Um, where does that one start? Yes, we cannot claim to love God. The earth is created, sustained, and redeemed by Christ, so we cannot claim to love God while abusing what belongs to Christ by right of creation, redemption, and inheritance. We care, for, I mean, we as Christians care for the earth and responsibly use its abundant resources, not according to the rationale of the secular world, but for the Lord's sake. Because if Jesus is Lord of all the earth, we cannot separate our relationship to Christ from how we act in relation to the earth. For to proclaim the gospel that says Jesus is Lord, it's very hard of the gospel, is to proclaim the gospel that includes the earth since Christ's lordship is over all creation. So creation care then is a gospel issue within the lordship of Christ. It's because Jesus is Lord. And that's why again and again, I've tried to say uh, that in my view, we have to keep that star at the center of all our mission. It's because Jesus is Lord, because the kingdom of God has come in Christ and will be consummated at the end. It's because we live within that story, that biblical historical narrative, creation and new creation, uh, that we hold all of these things together uh, from evangelism to the care of creation. So that's where I'll stop. Well, actually, it wasn't quite where I was going to stop because I, I maybe, how are we doing? Oh, we've got a couple minutes. Very, very quickly, I'll just say, so what? What difference should this make to our church? And this is really just three points, which you might want then to discuss or left in the question. First of all, it means that God's whole mission is for God's whole church. And that was what, um, what uh, Corey said at the very beginning. Uh, God created the church for the sake of his mission. So mission is not a specialist activity that gets done by the people we pay to do it on our behalf, you know, missionaries or ministers. But having said that, don't be you know, overwhelmed by this. Because sometimes when I talk about holistic mission in this way, you know, somebody will say, look, you know, you're talking about preaching the gospel and teaching theology and, you know, healing the sick and um, freeing slaves and hugging the trees and all that. And, you know, there's only one of me. I can't do all of those things. And I want to say, yeah, I think God probably thought of that too. And that's why he created the church. <laughs> you know, so that it's not that everybody has to do everything, but that everybody needs to be intentional about something. And God will use the variety of gifts and enthusiasm and commitments of a whole body of Christ, a community of believers, to be involved in all of this. So God's whole mission for God's whole church, and then the church's whole mission includes every church member, uh, not just the missionaries or the ministers. Uh, it's so important to get hold of that biblical understanding of ministry um, that, you know, it's not that you come to church to support Corey and his ministry, Corey comes to church to support you and yours because it's, that's to equip the saints for their work of ministry in the world. 
uh, and that's the same for mission. Our rector at All Souls Church, um, John Stott's church, the last rector, Hugh Palmer, once said on a World Mission Sunday, uh, a bit like this weekend, and he said, this church sends out 1,500 mission partners every week. That's the, about the full membership of the church. And he said, and a few of them are serving God overseas. So what he meant was that over the inside door of the church, ought to be written, it isn't literally, ought to be written, you are now entering the mission field. As you go out of the gathered church into the world, you're going out in God's mission, every church member. And therefore, every church member's mission includes the whole of life. Uh, it's not just the religious things that count. It's our daily work, our life, our family, our leisure, the way we use our resources, our money, everything that we are comes under the lordship of Christ. You see, if he's the Lord of heaven and earth, He's the Lord of the sports field as, as much as the church. He's the Lord of the streets and the slums just as much uh, as the hospitals and everything else that's also good. He is the Lord of everything. And therefore, there is no place, no role, no realm in which Jesus is not Lord and in which, therefore, we are committed to be disciples and to make disciples for him. So that, I think, is where I'll, where I'll stop. Corey, do you want to... Hand over in some way or lead some questions. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much, Chris. Covered a lot of ground. The whole Bible, the whole mission of God. Well done. Well, we've got um, about 15 minutes for questions. So I know that um, I've got like 10 questions, but I'll hold back because I can maybe ask you later. But <laughs> but um, I'll, let's open it up to you all. Um, what questions might you have for Chris? Yes, and I'll, I'll repeat everything, all the questions, so that the recording can pick it up later. So I hear you saying that everyone can't do everything. I, I get that, and that we have our gifts. What do you think? I see that if you look at the whole body of Christ, there are groups that seem to just do evangelism and teaching, mm -hmm. and they do it pretty well. And then there are others, like maybe Presbyterians can fall into the category of they do Justice and compassion. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's been their go-to. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen much emphasis on creation care, though. No, there. that's right. Do you see that? I think it's coming more. I, I think the younger generation of people are so worried and concerned about climate change and the, you know, the catastrophe that's ahead in terms of we don't do something. Because it is now, on the la la latest report, that it's both undeniable and irreversible. Uh, and that basically all the accomplishments of the human race for the last 10,000 years have happened within a climate that has gone forever, is the way one of them put it. So I think people are now more aware of that issue. And it's good that at long last, Christians are waking up to say, yeah, and so should we be, because we should have been there first. So I would want to say, I mean, it's not just that there should be different groups doing these things, but I would want to say that even within a church, uh, you know, meaning a local church, there ought to be something of a kind of mission audit in which we ask ourselves, are we paying some attention at least to all of these five marks? That's the way All Souls does it, for example. Our All Souls World Mission uh, Committee and everything uh, explicitly says that we, we seek to be engaged in evangelism and teaching theological education and works of justice and compassion and creation care. So they support Arosha, for example, and Tear Fund. Now, not all equally. It's not in the sense that we put one-fifth of our budget into every one of these areas because a church like All Souls is very strong on evangelism and teaching disciples. But it doesn't 
say, well, somebody else can do those other jobs. It wants to say, we as a church need to have an integrated understanding of what mission involves. And then also to say to all the members of the church, and whatever your work is in the workplace, be asking yourself the question, how is God involved in this particular work? So the temptation sometimes is to ask people when you interview them on a, on a workplace Sunday, oh, so you're a, a design engineer, that's nice. So um, how do you find being a Christian at work? You know, Are you able to meet with other Christians and share the gospel? Well, yeah, they can. What I want to ask them is, oh, so you're a design engineer. Why do you think that matters to God? Because God is a great designer. Have you thought about the fact that that's a very godly thing to be doing? And that in doing good design and good work and improving the standards of human living, you're actually serving God in a creational sense. So, oh, I hadn't thought of that. I'm just, I'm just a Christian doing that. And I earn my money and then I give to the missionaries, you know. And so I, I, I really, this was very, again, very much a John Stott thing that he wanted every Christian, whether clergy or lay, to realize that they were engaged in mission and ministry in their work. Thanks, Chris. Andrew. Thanks, Elaine. Um, I want to ask your thoughts about whether the church, the modern church has, the modern evangelical church has surrendered something by focusing its missiological beginning with the covenant, uh, the Abrahamic covenant, because like so many missionaries, that's where we've started and we've surrendered. I wonder if we've surrendered something by ignoring Genesis chapter 1 to 11, because Genesis chapter 1 to 11 um, has been consigned by some to the realm of myth, mm -hmm. and yet in Genesis chapter 1 to 11, we find the creation mandate. Mm -hmm. We find other things about human relationships and, and other things that you've mentioned today, which are rooted there. Thank you. That's very good and very, very wise, and I would, I would want to agree. Um, the uh, the so-called Dutch reform, the neo-Calvinist sort of thing, going back to Balvink and Doerveer and others, um, would say that we need to recognize the importance of creational theology, that we live in God's creation. It's broken, uh, it's fallen, but it is still God's creation. He loves everything that he has made. And therefore that the promise of God through Abraham, yes, it is explicitly to the nations, but when you read the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, the Psalms are full of God's love for creation and the creation coming to rejoice in him. He loves everything that he has made, says Psalm 145, a couple of times. And so you want to get this sense that what God begins to do in Genesis 12 is not just the answer to Genesis 3, which is, you know, individual sin, the fall of Adam and Eve, that we all are sinners and need to be forgiven. It's also God's answer to Genesis 11, which is the Tower of Babel, where you get this scattering and judgment on the nations, which is why when you come to Revelation, uh, you get this glorious fulfillment of both that there'll be no more sin and no more curse in Revelation 22, um, but also that there'll be people of every tribe and nation and language there redeemed. So you get this great arch from Babel to um, Revelation 21. Uh, and, and God said, I'm going to bring it all together. And we, so, um, yeah, so I, I think we need to hold on to that creational foundation, uh, a broken creation, but a creation God is redeeming. And then do everything we can to get out of this escapist kind of mission, you know, that the whole world is just going to sink like the Titanic and all we can do is man the lifeboats um, and get as many people saved as possible when God has, that's true, but God has a bigger mission. It's a big story. Um, just let me mention Colossians 1 again. 
It's fascinating to me that our typical way of presenting the gospel is to start with the individual, say, you know, you're a sinner, you need to be forgiven. Wonderful, that's true. I believe that, by the way. You know, I'm not, I'm not going away from that at all. Uh, you need to be forgiven. And now you've repented and been saved, you know, you really need to join a church because we've got to stick together and you need fellowship and teaching. So, you know, join a church. Oh, and yeah, you better do your work out there in the world, pay your taxes and so on, be a good citizen. It's interesting that Paul starts the precisely the opposite way, Ryan. He starts with the big story, that Christ is the Lord of all creation, all things, ta panta is the Greek, and he says it five times, all things in heaven and earth created by Christ for Christ. That's the big story. And God is going to redeem the whole church. Then he moves to the church, and he talks about the body of Christ, of which he is the head. Uh, and, and then he goes back to the creation. And then he says in verse 21, and you guys, kai humes, you know, and you get to be part of this when you believe the gospel. It is almost as if he says, God is this incredible great story for, this, for the redemption and reconciliation of the whole of creation. And guess what? You can be part of it. And you get to be part of it when you believe the gospel, the good news, and repent and come to faith in Jesus. Uh, and so... That, that's the way I would want us to see the gospel more as, you know, the good news of God's plan for his whole creation in which, hey, we get to participate um, rather than just you get a personal swipe card for the day of judgment, as it were, uh, and go to heaven. And I think it, it tells a bigger story. And I actually think it resonates more with younger people these days because they've given up on the myth of modernity, which is that things are always going to get better and better. And, you know, look how tawdry that is now. So, and, and so in a postmodern, people are so losing any sense of identity. Who am I? You know, so I've got to create my identity on social media. So there's massive burden of being somebody. You've got to be yourself. And then you get all the sort of mythology of the Disney world. You know, you can be whatever you believe. Just believe and you can be what you want. And people say, ah, it's too, it's too heavy. I've got to... And the Bible says, look, God has made you in his own image. God has got this great plan. You're redeemed by Christ. Now simply live out who you are in Christ because that's your identity. And that's a much, much more straightforward story to be in. It's interesting. There's um, recently, there's um, apologetically, I've noticed that there's a fellow who works for university named Chung, I think, and he's written a new apologetic tool that instead of beginning with sin and the individual begins with, God's creation and ends with the restoration of creation and an invitation to be a part of the bigger exactly. story. I'm so glad to hear it. I think I'm really glad to hear it. And that was yeah. Leslie Newbegin's thing too. He said we need to confront the false religious story of yeah. the West, which is the story of atheistic humanism and scientism and so on. That's a narrative. It's a story. We need to confront that with the true story of the gospel. Mm. It's not just you try to plug the gospel into the world story. You actually have to have a missionary encounter with that narrative. Well, interesting, Newbegin, we Praveen and I were talking about this earlier. Newbegin wrote a little tract for Hindus in South India. It was called Sin and Salvation. Mm -hmm. And he rejected the apologetic form birthed in modernity and begun also with creation oh, in the church. The old story, yes. So, yeah. There's a question over yeah. here, I think. Kim. Question over here? Yeah. Monica. What would you say to someone who um, rejects the Christian view but is very secular and says it's the modern liberal project to bring these goods that you're talking about to the world and Christianity has nothing to do with that. It, I, I find that some of what 
I experience when talking about the justice piece, the creation care is a sense of Christians wanting to fit in with their secular neighbors, mm-hmm. but that's a, that, that will not end well, mm-hmm. that, that line of trying to fit in that way. Um, I think that um, secularity delivers better on some of these things in the public view mm-hmm. than Christianity. Yep. And that uh, what, if I was sitting here as a second person, I'd say, you know, why do I need the first two pieces of evangelism and of yeah. teaching? Well, what good is that? Great question. That's very well put. And I, I, I get exactly where you're coming from. And um, one of the best answers I'd give would be a book by Tom Holland called Dominion. You've read it? Yeah, in which he points out that the so-called secular liberal ideals are effectively parasitic on Christianity because they only entered into European civilization and culture from the gospel uh, because they certainly were not part of the Roman classical world and so on, which was so much idolized by the Enlightenment and the Renaissance. Um, and, and so I, I think if someone was was working in that way, I would want to at first agree and say, yeah, there are things within secular values, secular liberal values, such as the equality of all human beings, uh, this, you know, the sanctity of all human life, um, the, the need to you know, care for the needy and poor, anti-slavery, all those kind of things. Uh, and they're good things. And, and the, go back to where did they come from? And then to both point to their origins within Christianity, while at the same time acknowledging that Christians have done some pretty evil things too, and that Christianity as a religion has got a pretty poor track record in some areas. And a book I would recommend on that uh, would be uh, from an Australian author called John Dixon, spelled D-I-C-K-S-O-N, John Dixon, called Bullies and Saints. It's a wonderful title, Bullies and Saints. Um, And the origin of the book was exactly what you've just said, because he was involved with university debates um, in which the motion before the, 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 the crowd was that religion is the most evil thing in the world or something to that point. Now, basically, Christianity and religion are bad for human society. And he was there as the Christian defender. Uh, and so there was a big argument, secular Christianity and so on. And at the end of the debate, he'd made all his points and everything. At the end of the debate, the vote was taken and it was like 90% agreed with the motion. You know, basically, Christianity was bad. So he reckoned that he what he needed to do was to seek to both humbly acknowledge the evil that Christianity has done and yet help people to see that um, that, that secular liberalism, in a sense, comes from the sorts of roots in the not just the Gospels, but in the third century and then the early history of the church, African Christianity, Middle Eastern Christianity, and so on. And, and the last thing I would say would be, it is sad, in a sense, that Christians have to play catch-up with the world on things like justice and creation care when we ought to have been leading the debate in the way that evangelicals did do, if you go back, say, to the 19th century or the 18th, 19th centuries, um, certainly in Britain, when it was evangelicals who were known as the social reformers, who were actually seeking to improve the lot of the poor, who were bringing in democracy into the government and uh, outlawing corruption and so on. And they were doing it because they believed the gospel and the goodness of God. So there is a, there is a, there is a, in the bloodstream and DNA of evangelical Christianity, there is a concern for justice and so on, which we lost near the beginning of the 20th century when those areas of social 
progress and so on became the preserve of particularly of liberal Christianity, which believed in quotes the social gospel that somehow we could bring in the kingdom of God simply by human progress, um, which was effectively buying in to the secular humanist um, paradigm uh, and trying to Christianize it, which, as you say, doesn't end well. Um, and in fact, it has ended with a kind of liberal Christianity which is dead and dying. Um, but the answer is not to go on retreating into a pietistic kind of evangelicalism, which is nothing, which only wants to talk about evangelism and going to heaven and doesn't have anything to say to society. So I don't know whether that helps to answer your question. I'm glad you read Tom Holland on Dominion. So maybe pick up um, Bullies and Saints by John Dixon. Any time for one more question, Donald? Uh, Donald Marsden, I'm really glad to hear you speak about the creation care. I'm a gardener. Mm -hmm. I love my garden. I lo get lost there to escape from the internet and all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But um, two things that I, I'd like to hear what you think about this. It seems there's two things missing, at least, in, in when I hear Christians speak about creation care. One is we don't hear about God's providence. Um, if God is not the God who sustains the world, who cares for it, everything's lost. Mm -hmm. We can just pack it in and mm -hmm. quit. Yeah. Okay, but we don't hear about that. The people who speak about climate change have no place for the God who sustains this world. Some do. Not well, all. Some I'm do. saying yeah. most most of them. It's just a total. We're talking. It's a doomsday story, mm -hmm. and we we need to have a mean. theology of yeah. hope. Yeah. And that speaks about the God who sustains. The other thing it seems to me is we need to speak about God's wrath, yeah. because climate change and what's happening to us because of climate change. In my opinion, as I read the Bible, it is an expression of God's wrath mm -hmm. on humanity, sinful mm -hmm. humanity. Mm -hmm. But we don't talk about that mm -hmm. in our churches. We don't hear preaching about mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And we need to hear those things. So Good. I just want to hear what you say about Thank that. Thank you, Donald. And um, I, <laughs> all I want to say is uh, two things. One, uh, until quite recently, the chairman of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, was a very fine evangelical Christian uh, called Sir John Houghton, who retired, and he definitely had a theology of God's providence as well. But he was a scientist, and he, and he was a very, very renowned scientist. That's why he got his knighthood, Sir John Houghton. Um, second thing I would say is, I believe in the Noah covenant as well, that God has, uh, you know, God, through Noah, promised to sustain life on earth. Um, what interested me of late was going back to that text when I read the last IPCC report. And then you begin to think, gosh, you know, are we really in the process as human beings uh, of making this planet uninhabitable? Um, and it's interesting that, um, you know, the way in Genesis it says, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, summer and winter will not cease, as is God's promise to all life on earth. That phrase translated as long as the earth endures, is literally all the days of the earth. Now, in the previous chapter, uh, back in, I think, chapter 4, all the days of is an expression of mortality. Um, all the days of so-and-so were 350 years, uh, this and then he died. All the days of so-and-so, and then he died. <laughs> when I read that, it scared me because it made me think, well, okay... God is the God of providence who will sustain this planet for all the days of it until God says that's it. Okay, so that's, that's my confidence in a sense that if as human beings we have reached the point of being so foolish and so rebellious and so sinful with God's creation 
that in Romans 1 terms, as you put it, God has begun to say, well, that's the way you want it. And, and so I would agree with you that not just climate change is, is, is in part a symptom of the judgment of God, so is the pandemic, unquestionably, because it is related to that. I mean, the, the fact that, um, and this has been shown again by many scientists, and it won't be the last, that zoonotic diseases, as they're called, that is diseases that are caused by viruses jumping from animals to humans, um, which included uh, HIV initially and also Ebola and now also um, COVID, um, are to a large extent the result of human encroachment um, on, on natural habitat, on war, uh, on, uh, on the abuse of resources, on the trafficking of, of wild animals, uh, and so on. There's a whole range of issues, including climate change, which contribute to the likelihood of zoonotic diseases emerging which is why most scientists are saying COVID will not be the last. And the question is, when's the next one coming? And what are we going to do about it? Um, and then what I say is, you look at what happened with COVID, and then you multiply that by the folly <laughs> of so many governments around the world, some responding this way, some responding that way. And you look at the injustice of, of the, um, the, the vaccination realities and the, of, of the, you know, the majority world, not having a tiny fraction of what's available here. So you see so many ways in which things that sometimes get blamed on God, you know, why did God allow this? And I hear God up in heaven saying, well, why do you allow that? You know, you, there's, there's so much that humans could do but choose not to do because of our rebellion and often because of our folly. Um, and so I, I agree with you. We need to have a strong doctrine of God's providence uh, the earth, we, we live on an earth which is both cursed and covenanted. You have the curse of, of Genesis 3 and you have the covenant of, of Genesis 8 and 9. So the earth will be here as long as God says. But we also live on an earth which is vulnerable to human rebellion and sin, in which, believe it or not, we have the ability as humans to make the earth uninhabitable, at least many parts of the earth uninhabitable for many humans. And that's going to lead to incredible catastrophic migrations, some of which are already happening, from hot parts of the world to still cooler parts, though how long they'll remain cooler is again great. And so this is, this is what I find both scary. It's where, I, where you have to keep coming back as a Christian biblical believer to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and the providence of God and the hope of new creation, that whatever happens, we have hope because God is the God of all the earth and when the Lord returns, all creation will rejoice and will be renewed. And we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Um, so that's, that's a hope. It's, it's what we believe. But it doesn't stop us being serious about the issues of the here and now. Does that help? Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you.